Welcome to Library Land Conversations. I'm Greg Peverell-Conti, the Executive Director of the Library Land Project. Hi, everybody. I'm Adam Zand. I'm the President of the Library Land Project. And we're here for another installment of our Library Land Conversations. This is a podcast series that we dreamed up as a way to kind of get through COVID um, and keep our conversations going with people from the library ecosystem. We're really excited about this episode, and not just because one of our guests is a board member. Uh, the issue of how we collectively connect with uh, and engage with people with disabilities is really important. At some point in all of our lives, every one of us is going to face a disability. It might be the result of an accident. It could be the result of aging. It could be a condition we're born with. Yeah, so let's introduce our guests and get right into it. Um, our guests have been fighting and advocating for disabled people for years. Sandy Ho, who is a board member of the Library Land Project, has been a disability policy researcher at the Lurie Institute for Disability Policy at Brandeis University. She's also a community organizer. She's founder of the Disability and Intersectionality Summit. And you'll learn a little bit more, but her areas of disability policy research include experience of disabled people of color in public health, their civic engagement of disabled people. And if she isn't that busy, she manages the Community Living Policy Center. And um, um, I think she'll tell us a little bit more um, about some of her achievements and what she does as an advocate, but she was recognized by the advocate publication as a champion of pride in 2020. And thank you for joining us, Sandy. Happy to be here, thank you. <laughs> We're also joined by Emily Liddell, uh, a disability rights advocate and the author of Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. Blurb alert, uh, this practical intersectional guide offers reader, all readers a welcoming place to understand disability as part of the human experience. Thank you, Emily, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is fun. Uh, really looking forward to this one. But, you know, why don't we start maybe each of you and maybe Sandy first could share a bit about your background, uh, maybe some of the details of things you're working on now. Yeah, absolutely. So this is Sandy Ho speaking. Um, I use she, her pronouns. And if it's helpful for members of the audience who might be blind or low vision, I am a Asian American stable woman. I have uh, shorter length, dark baby hair. I'm wearing tortoiseshell glasses and I have a black t-shirt on. Uh, it says, it's an honor just to be Asian, the iconic quote from Sandra. And so just some background on me. Um, thank you, Adam, for that introduction. Um, so I born, raised, educated in the Boston area. Um, and so much of my work is really shaped by um, Massachusetts disability community and my relationship to um, some of the national disability policies through my work at Brandeis University Community Living Policy Center, which focuses on improving and expanding access to community living outcomes and practices for disabled people to remain in their communities rather than being institutionalized. Um, and then as a community organizer, as Adam mentioned, 
Um, I am the founder and one of the co-organizers of the Disability and Intersectionality Summit. And that is a biennial conference um, that is organized by disabled activists across the country. And it really centers and elevates disabled people of color as presenters. Um, this year, the, the GIS conference is happening exclusively online, of course. Um, and yeah, I can share some of those links and the Twitter handle a little bit later on. But um, in terms of my relationship and like work in terms of public libraries, um, I've always been a fan of them and grew up around public libraries, uh, specifically the Boston Public Library where my grandparents worked and am happily when the opportunity came up to be a member of the board of directors for Library Learn Project, obviously enthusiastically said yes. So awesome. Emily, do you wanna share some of your background? Sure, I'd be happy to. This is Emily speaking. I use she, her pronouns and I will name that I am a white woman with brown hair. I'm wearing uh, fun kind of cat eye black glasses and I'm wearing a, a blue shirt with polka dots and I've got blue headphones on. So let's see, where to start with my background? I was born with my physical disability uh, called Larson syndrome. It's a genetic joint muscle disorder. And the reason that I named that specifically is because my mother and her younger brother, my uncle, share the same disability. And so it's very much a part of my blood, of my identity, of my culture. And it is something that has really shaped how I have navigated the world around me. I am incredibly passionate about disability rights activism. And it is something that has been a lifelong journey for me. And I don't mean that in a cliche way, but I, I quite literally mean that I have been on this path and I continue to learn and to evolve in my thinking and my understanding and my advocacy of disability. I always like to give the caveat that I'm one person and I have one disability experience and there's 1.3 billion disabled people at least around the world. And so it's simply impossible for any disabled person to speak for every disabled person. I am someone who wears a lot of metaphorical hats when it comes to my activism and my work, and I'm very, very lucky that I get to do so. I do a lot of consulting in the nonprofit sector, a little bit in the federal sector, in the philanthropic sector, and what I will name specifically today is that I am the editor-in-chief of the Rooted in Rights blog. And that's something that I'm particularly honored that I get to work on because it's my opportunity to support and amplify the work and the words and the wisdom of so many other people within the disability community, especially um, disabled people who are multiply marginalized. And that's not a role that I take for granted, that people trust me with their writing and to support them and in, in putting it out there in the world. And so I really, truly love what I get to do. And I'm a words girl. I just, I love it. 
So that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Emily, I've got, I've got a follow up. Um, you know, when when did you make that sort of decision to become an activist? Because a lot of times, you know, you can be angry about something or passionate about something, but actually stepping up and doing something about it is kind of hard for people. Can you can you think of that sort of origin story in a way? To be quite honest, I don't think that there was one moment that determined my activism. I think that when disability is part of who you are and the rest of the world is telling you to separate yourself from it, you know, there's a couple of ways that that can go. And for me, I leaned into it and I said, I'm going to defy everyone who's telling me that this is not something I should be proud of and something that I should embrace. And this is something that I'm passionate about understanding within myself and within the world around me. There was probably one moment that defined my activism, but I don't think I realized it until many years later. I got to appear on several episodes of Sesame Street. And (laughs) so cool. That was, that was a, a fun time and being on Sesame Street and I was only 10 years old and I I talked a lot about my disability. I moved into the neighborhood. I got to hang out with Big Bird and Elmo and Oscar and, you know, talk about my experiences using different mobility equipment and things like that. So at 10 years old, I don't think I appreciated the platform. But looking back, I realized that having that power to educate on a national platform showed me that bridging gaps and connecting with people really did have power behind it and storytelling really did have power behind it. So I think that was the start of my activism, but it continues to develop. So it, it's awesome to you on Sesame street. I, I watched it when it first came on and my kids watched it as they grew. Um, I, I read your book. I, And I really enjoyed it. Although maybe enjoyed is the wrong word. I, I found it really interesting and very helpful. Can you talk about, uh, about, a, about the book, its inspiration, the process, its reception, and the impact you hope it will have on people's lives? Wow, big questions. But <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I feel compelled to first point out that it is, just one book, that there are so, so many books on disability, on the disability experience. And the goal of this book, despite being called Demystifying Disability, despite saying that it's got information on what to know, what to say, how to be an ally, it is still one person's perspective, though I tried to bring in as many perspectives as I could knowing that there's simply no way to encompass the entirety of a billion plus people. But I don't ever want anybody to think that I assume myself to be some kind of sole expert or authority on disability. In fact, I'm really, really lucky. I found people like Sandy early on in my advocacy work, thanks to the wonders of social media. I remember actually Sandy reading an early blog post of yours and just feeling so empowered by that, that somebody else was writing about disability on the internet, not realizing that so many people were doing that, um, but really finding my way. But I realized that there are so many, 
the phone's going to ring for a minute now. So I'll pause. All right. Okay, we're good. Sorry about that. I realized that there are so many people who may want to talk about disability, but have been socialized to understand it as taboo, as something we don't say, as something we don't talk about. And my hope is that in writing this book, I was able to give people just an entry point into the conversation, some of the tools to use, some of the words to use, a better understanding of some background on disability, knowing full well that it will never be fully complete, but hopefully it will at least give people a way to say, okay, I don't want to be afraid of disability. I don't want to be intimidated by disability, I recognize disability as part of humanity and I'm going to start acting like it's part of humanity instead of pushing it to the wayside. Um, I'm a big believer in meeting people where they're at. And so with this book, my hope was that for the people who are ableist, honestly, because they just haven't been exposed to conversations to debunk a lot of the ableism that they carry with them, maybe we can have a conversation. For the people who only have an understanding of disability shaped by what they've seen on television, which is often very inaccurate, very narrow, very white, I hope that we can shape that conversation and take it in a much more productive direction. So that was really the impetus behind the book was just creating that starting point for people, just one starting point and hoping that after people read it, they won't say, oh, I read one book. I'm done now. They'll say, okay, there's so much more out there to read, to consume, to understand. And I want to be a part of that. Well, we, we glad, we're really glad you are and obviously sharing with our audience and, and just for people who weren't taking notes before, the name of the book is Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. Um, Sandy, I want to turn over to you. And one of my heroes in the local Boston media scene is on WGBH once a week. It's the Reverend Irene Monroe. Um, I don't have a question about her, but a term she uses pretty much every episode is intersectionality. And I know it's something that that is sort of near and dear to your identity and sort of how your identities interact and interact with society. So I thought it'd be interesting for our audience to hear a little bit uh, of what Greg and I have learned from you on the topic of intersectionality. Great, thank you. Um, so intersectionality has become kind of a buzzword. Um, recently over the I would say like five or seven years um although you know I think it's always important to bring it back to who first coined that term um Kimberly Crenshaw actually in the late 80s um and you know Kimberly Crenshaw is a civil rights scholar activist um and you know this term was really coming from the uh, legal case uh, where a black woman um, was experiencing discrimination, not just on the basis of race or gender, but at the intersection of both. And 
um, I encourage the audience to uh, look up that history if you're not already familiar with it. So intersectionality has then become this framework um, to help people do power analyses of you know, where does power exist and where is it not as strongly evident or where is it completely absent um, in things like public libraries or in conversations around disability. Um, as Emily had mentioned just now, you know, a lot of times our perceptions and understanding of disability are, I think, predominantly white, physically disabled, wheelchair users, folks who um, you know, are able to communicate in ways like Emily and I do, um, through you know, talking or um, ways that our society quote unquote expects. And I think that is helpful when thinking about who is missing from the conversations around disability. Um, intersectionality is one of the principles of the disability justice framework. And it's meant to help you know, folks understand that it isn't just one form of oppression like ableism that affects disabled people um, and their allies, but the ways in which all of these forms of oppression, including ableism, racism, sexism, homophobia, among many others, um, really work intertwinedly. And um, you know, we can't just address one without also acknowledging the ways that they all come together. Um, and I think when folks think about disability and access in particular, um, you know, a lot of our disability approaches is very much within the legal laws and even through civil rights like the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, which is now more than 30 years old, but still we're finding that that is not you know, carried throughout um, public entities like public libraries and, and even in places where we would expect to find access, um, it's really lacking. And so intersectionality, I think really broadens that idea of access and accessibility. Um, so for instance, when I'm thinking about what that looks like in a public library setting, I'm not just thinking about ramps and door buttons, but how is access provided to folks who may be houseless, maybe experiencing poverty, maybe you know not have language acquisition or um, have access to resources that you know might help them obtain healthcare or tax forms or citizenship, whatever it may be. And I think that's where we see the possibilities of disability being really more present in other aspects than just kind of that single siloed image that people often have in their mind of who is a person with a disability and what does that person look like? You talked about, um, in, in an early conversation, you talked about a library being a place where all the different sections of you were, were validated. And, you know, that was like a really important thing for Adam and I to hear as we thought about accessibility and what that meant. Um, you know, I'm curious if both of you could talk about uh, kind of your, your experiences with, with a disability and accessibility in public libraries, you personally, but then are there any anecdotal things that you've heard that 
kind of bring this issue into sharper focus? I'd be happy to share. I will say that my local public library, and I still live where I grew up, so it's it's still, you know, a mainstay in my life. And my mom is the president of the Friends of the Library, so we are very uh, involved in in library culture, if you will. Um, but Emily, what, what, where is that library? West Babylon, West Babylon Public Library. And so I have nothing but good things to say about my local library. And, you know, I feel uh, such an affinity towards it just because it has always been a place that I have been able to go and I have been able to enjoy um, that included me in children's programming when I was younger that, you know, is an accessible building. It's, it's, a great place, but you know, I've not always had wonderful experiences at other libraries, and I won't um, name the the library specifically, but I will say that at another library in New York City, I entered the library and was just minding my own business with a friend of mine. We were going to work on some research, and the security guard yelled after me, and she said, wheelchair person, hey, wheelchair person, you got to sign in. Apparently, people with visible disabilities needed to sign in for security purposes in case of an emergency, and I was like, what are you going to do if there's an emergency in this giant public library, are you going to start shouting wheelchair person and hope that I answer? So that story sticks with me because yes, it happened in a library, but it's really something that could happen anywhere. But my hope has always been that in, you know, places of, of public gathering and public learning, that people would know better or people would have access to some kind of training to to know better but unfortunately that's not the case and so my experiences with libraries have certainly varied uh from very very positive to to rather negative as you can tell but on the whole i feel like my local library has always been a particularly safe go-to space for me and I feel very lucky. How about anything to add to that Sandy from your experiences? Sure, yeah um so I think one of the moments in which I experienced access at a library and also kind of like the community advocacy around it um was a few years ago, back when the Boston Public Library Copley Square branch was undergoing renovation to their Boylston Street entrance. And um, at the time, the other entrance, the Dartmouth Street facing entrance, uh, was not accessible. But because they were doing renovations to the accessible entrance, the city had to install a what they had at the time called a temporary ramp to the Dartmouth Street entrance. And I remember the local Boston disability community um, coming together to the mayor's office of people with disabilities um, and having this meeting and advocating for the fact that it isn't just one or the other entrance, but 
we need to provide accessible entrances for everybody. Uh, and you know, that kind of moment of collective community advocacy and, and making sure that our public leaders hear us um, kind of left a really big impression in my mind um, in terms of how libraries can and should respond to access requests um, and how accessibility is thought about and how you know they they should be provided um, and so you know since then there has always ramps um, on the Dartmouth um, and it's really cool because you know growing up my grandparents worked at that Copley Square branch of the library and I never able to go up you know those staircases and see you know the the marble lion statues from that side of the entrance I always had to go through and like do the roundabout back end and like do the elevators and all of the stuff um and it's just kind of you know what Emily was saying too like when I'm thinking about emergency access like these are the things that come to mind like no I'm not gonna you know try to navigate through during a fire drill or any other emergency um trying to find my my own way out but it needs to be an exit or an entrance that is readily available like it is for everybody else i i really like both the examples you use because at some level i'm sure the libraries are thinking oh we we care about uh people with disabilities we're going to come up with this list of people or we're going to come up with this convoluted route to get them in no matter what but it, it, it I, I guess i'm wondering like are there are there um like how can a library be a more of an effective ally and sort of ask people who are disabled like what the experience is like for them i think that's such a vital question to ask because I acknowledge Sandy and I have been talking largely about physical accessibility because that's our primary experience of disability, not to speak for you, Sandy, but, you know, um, to, to point out that we are both wheelchair users and physically disabled. And so that is a lot of what access looks like to us, but library access is really about so much more than just physical accessibility as Sandy was naming. I think that we need to recognize that libraries are places where everyone can and should be welcome. And so that means people who have intellectual disabilities. That means people who have mental health disabilities, right? That means people who have non-apparent disabilities. And so it's not just a matter of, is there a ramp to get into the building, but are you providing cognitively accessible reference materials and resource materials? Are you ensuring that, you know, yes, a library is a quiet and a safe space, but do you have an area of the library where someone can go that might be less overstimulating than, you know, some of the cold, harsh lights and, you know, decor and books everywhere? What if somebody just wants to go sit with the book in a very undistracting area? Are you ensuring that your librarians have actual training around interacting with disabled patrons? 
are you ensuring that the books that you're buying and that you're putting on the shelves are representative of vast communities of disabled people? You know, there's so many questions to be asking yourself about how you can really make the library a more accessible place. And I recognize a lot of things may be dependent on budget, like, for example, being able to offer some assistive or adaptive technology for the computers or being able to ensure that you're providing books in multiple formats, right, for people who may not be able to read a regular size print book. Are you able to attain a large print book for them? Can you provide them, you know, an audio book? There are so many things to take into consideration, and I think that's where people immediately are like, okay, well, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know where to start, but my best recommendation is ask yourself, are you making space for disabled patrons who come to your library to speak up and to tell you their needs and to request accommodation? Are you showing within the displays that you make, within the way that you have laid out the library, that it's a welcoming environment for people. There's so many questions that you can ask yourself to get started, knowing that it's not like there's some kind of destination where you're going to have achieved peak, perfect <laughs> accessibility for everybody, but you can certainly do a lot to get started. And that's what I would love to see a shift towards in larger library culture. I, I think many people share that, that wish, you know, when we spoke to, I, with Sandy at one point, you talked about the idea, you know, the ADA is a floor, it's not a ceiling. And, you know, it's great that people are striving for the ceiling, but once you get past that, you know, we talk a lot about things like, you know, are people able to access services in a way that's kind of respectful of them and preserves their dignity? Not simply that they're being accommodated, but that they're being welcomed in. Uh, you both mentioned a couple of libraries that have gotten this right in West Babylon and the BPL. Are there any of the libraries you'd like to give a shout out to that are doing an awesome job? Yeah, so this is Sandy and um, the ones that come to mind immediately for me, and, and I want to preface this by saying that uh, in the pre-before times, I, whenever I traveled, I would always make it a point to visit public libraries of the cities that I went to, not only because I knew that those were the places that would likely be accessible to me, um, but also because public libraries in those cities are representative of the actual community, the culture, the place that I was visiting. And so two of those places I wanted to highlight are the San Francisco Public Library, uh, where I noticed immediately coming into the entrance on the first floor, there's a large sign that said deaf services. Um, and that was a place where um, not just for deaf and, and folks who, have, who are hard of hearing, can get resources and um, information, but also is just a welcoming and open place um, for their educators, for speech therapists, for whoever wanted to um, learn more or, or are working with deaf and hard of hearing folks. And then the second 
library that comes to mind is uh, the New York Public Library. Um, and I bring that up because of like learning more about their Braille and talking book library uh, resource, which is so cool. And I'm sure Emily as a New Yorker could talk more about this. But when I learned that, you know, they provided students who are blind, um, like all of their summer reading materials uh, in an accessible format, like that, it was just sort of like, well, obviously that's needed and that needs to be done. But like to have that be in a public space rather than in some back corner in a school setting and a quote unquote like special classroom resources right, that further stigmatizes. I think this is where libraries can lead in just having the visibility of disability present in our community like they have any other resource. I, I got a resource follow-up question. So people are going to listen to this, hopefully watch it and want to do more and want to learn more. Like where should people turn um, for those resources to be educated on a lot of the topics you've both talked about? I think something that is incredibly vital is reading more that's written by disabled people. I think that is one of the most important things you can do, not necessarily because it's going to provide all the answers, but because it's going to give you a much broader cultural perspective when it comes to understanding disability culture, history, identity. I mean, I cannot recommend enough Alice Wong's uh, anthology, Disability Visibility. I think that's a, a really strong and important representation of a, a vast array of different disability experiences. And, you know, I also really do recommend engaging with the work that Sandy is doing around the Disability Intersectionality Summit, because I think that we are so often siloed in our work. And again, to have this very um, white centric understanding of disability. And I, I say that acknowledging full well that I am a white woman with a disability. Um, I am very lucky that there are organizers who put together learning opportunities for me so that I can continue to expand my own knowledge around disability and then bring that back to the rest of the work that I do. And I think that's crucial for librarians. You know, it's one thing to have a one-day sensitivity training. I actually, back in 2016, participated in a sensitivity training for the New York Public Library, but that's one day, and I don't want you to be sensitive to me. I want one you to day. treat me like a human being. You know, I want you to acknowledge my humanity and keep learning and keep going. What do you wish, you know, what do you wish more libraries were thinking about or doing? I mean, a one-day sensitivity workshop sounds awesome, but you say that's not really a solution. What do you wish they were they were doing? Well, I, you know, I think that in some ways, um, librarians are already and public libraries are already doing some of this. They might not be calling it or thinking of it as disability access. But so one example would be um, recently, um, I've been seeing public library systems across cities um, do away with fines for uh, late fees. Um, and not only is this an example of a intersectional and also um, disability access policy, um, but it's because when we think about 
know, who the public library is serving and what that population looks like, who are the surrounding communities. And, you know, recognizing that poverty is one of the biggest barriers for many communities, including disabled people um, and, and disabled people of color who are multiply marginalized. Um, you know, this is something that libraries can and, and should be doing more of and thinking about not just like how to address disability, but also, you know, the intersectionality of, of disability and the ways that it is embodied in their patrons or the services that they're provided. And I think like one other example would be recognizing that disability is across the lifespan. Right? And so people acquire disability, whether through poverty, illness, and trauma, like Greg, you know, began this podcast with. Um, and just because that library might be providing access doesn't mean it is a one-size-fits-all. So, you know, providing access is great, but also don't be disappointed if a disabled patron doesn't use that form of access that you provided. Um, for example, I personally do not use the automated checkout, uh, even if they are at a lower table. Um, and it's just things like this where it's not about addressing disability and it's more about recognizing that disability is a part of the community that libraries are already serving. That's, that's so important. I, I mean, we could go on for a while, but we always like to wrap up these conversations by asking for a favorite library memory. And this could be from your youth or from your travels. And, um, you know, before, this is this has been awesome. It's been eye opening, ear opening. Uh, you know, you've given us a lot to think about, but we'd love to hear about some of your formative library experiences. I think my favorite library memories, and it, it's hard to isolate one specifically, but I want to point to my college library because the number of late nights and group gatherings that were in that library just you know, whiling away the hours, finishing papers, and we would call it, um, it was called the Swarble Library. I went to Adelphi University, and so my friends and I all called it Club Swerbs because we spent so many nights there, and so I just think back so fondly to my time in my college library because I knew it was always a place I could go to get things done. I knew it was always going to be there for me, no matter the hour of the day, no matter what I was working on. Um, and of course that it was accessible to me and I never felt like I did not belong there. I wish I could zoom in on more specific memories, but let me tell you, I'm so far out of college now. It's been 10 years that <laughs> everything is just blended together for me, but yeah. um, good good days and good nights and club swerves for sure. S Sandy, you shared a couple earlier, but do you have a, another one you want to grace us with? Sure. So um, growing up, I grew up in the city of Newton, Massachusetts, and so was frequently a visitor of the Newton Free Library. And um also you know many of my friends houses uh in elementary middle school and even still today you know were not necessarily the most accessible places and so instead i would often just tell our parents like yeah we're working on a group project at the library and instead just like go and hang out and 
you know, like the thing is, libraries are also a place of joy of gathering and not just work and serious, silent, quiet studying behind dusty books. But I think that's what I'm most excited about when I think about like the direction libraries are going now, um, that it is such a community place where fun can be had. Awesome. Is there anything as we wrap up that you guys would like to plug or promote anything you're working on you want to share? I would just be happy to note that if people want to continue the conversation at all, they're welcome to find me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Words I Wheel By. I'm on Twitter at Emily underscore Ladau, L-A-D-A-U. And I'm on Instagram, no underscore, just at Emily Ladau. So I, I welcome people to connect and engage. And this is Sandy, and I would just welcome and invite folks that if you're interested in checking out any of the Intersectionality Summit workshops for the rest of the year, um, following me on Twitter. So the uh, Intersectionality Summit's Twitter handle is summit underscore org. And then my personal Twitter is um, not your average ho 101. And I- <laughs> anything and yeah thank you so much for having me and i am just so privileged to even have emily as a friend and advocate so yeah this has been fun oh thank you both emily sandy it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you guys today i thank you so much for joining us Thank um, you for I'm going to take, of course, of course, um, and I'm going to take a tip from from Emily. Uh, Greg is wearing an orange hat. He's wearing <laughs> a green sweater with a G orange on it that his wife made him. I'm wearing silver glasses, and I've got Liverpool headphones and a uh, a, a shirt that's kind of stripy. And uh, but thank you both for being here. We're going to have more library link conversations. Um, we thank followers. We say thank friends. And obviously, if you're a first time listener, welcome aboard. Um, If you have comments, questions, suggestions for guests, please drop us a line info at librarylandproject.org. That's also our website. And until next time, we'll see you in Libraryland. Bye.